Okay, let's turn back to Genesis chapter 42 this morning. What methods has God used to get you on the track of salvation and uh, keep you there? Obviously, he always uses his word, the Bible, but often he will bring circumstances and people into your life whom he will use to influence you for his purposes. And this is what we find in Genesis chapter 42 as the story of Jacob and Joseph continues. The Lord's going to use climate change, a severe famine, to get Israel down into Egypt He's also going to use Joseph and Judah to bring healing and reconciliation to Jacob's family. But before all this can happen, some serious changes have to take place in that family. The Lord has already set the stage for their deliverance by blessing Joseph in Egypt, even though it was evil circumstances that took him there in the first place. We left Jacob bereaved back in chapter 37, and he has now been out of the picture for the last 20 years until we come to chapter 42. And it's still clear that he is grieving over the loss of his son Joseph. Nothing of Jacob is recorded during that period of time, so it seems the family is just kind of floating uh, through life with literal direction. All of Joseph's brothers by now have their own families, their own uh, uh, sons and daughters are coming along, but there's no indication that they're interested in spiritual things and being involved in the fulfillment of God's promises to them. And there are subtle hints here that Jacob's family is still dysfunctional and fractured. Now, this all begins to change, though, when the brothers are forced to go to Egypt to get food that will sustain them through the famine. And little do they know that their long-lost brother is now the prime minister of that land. So through God's providence and Joseph's wisdom, these men will be confronted with their sin, which leads to the way of reconciliation. They're going to begin to become the men God can use to develop the tribes of Israel into his special nation. And God uses in our lives people and circumstances to help us grow in our walk with him in order that we too might be able to help others in their walk with God. So those who submit to his guidance and discipline will be used of the Lord to further his purposes of salvation in the world. As we consider this chapter, let's ask the Lord's blessing upon it. Heavenly Father, once again, we're thankful today uh, for these stories of old that show how you progressively brought people to the place of service where you could use them. And we know, Lord, that uh, many times we go through hard things in life, but you have a good purpose in them all. We're thankful, Lord, that Uh, Through the working of Joseph, you could bring reconciliation to their family and continue to fulfill your promises that you gave to Abraham. Help us to realize, Lord, that uh, you work in similar ways in our lives today and use us to influence others as well. Bless us as we look to our study in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Now, actually, chapter 42 and chapter 43 go together, but obviously we don't have time to cover that much territory this morning. So we're going to look at chapter 42, which is composed of three scenes. Verses 1 through 5 show us the necessity of Joseph's brothers going down to Egypt so that they can obtain food. Then in verses uh, 6 through 24, we have this confrontation going on between Joseph, who knows his brother, uh, brothers, and they who do not know Joseph, and he's uncovering their guilt by what happens. And finally, on the return back home, beginning in verse 25, we, we see the response of Jacob to his son's misadventure. Now, let's take a look then at verses 1 through 5. When Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, Jacob said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Indeed, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down to that place and buy for us there, that we may live and not die. So Joseph's ten brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he said, Lest some calamity befall him. And the sons of Israel went to buy grain among those who journeyed, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. All right, so here we have the dilemma of Jacob's family. And we think about the time frame here and the circumstances. This famine creates a situation where survival in Canaan is threatened. And we're probably at least one year into that famine, maybe a little bit longer. We know that Jacob and his family are shepherds, and herders, they're not farmers, so they need grazing land, and they also need food and uh, resources for their own family. And the situation has become so severe that Jacob says, you need to go down to Egypt and get some grain so that we may live and not die. So their very lives are being threatened by this situation, and also all the promises of God given to them uh, in the past if they would not survive. Now, Jacob's sons, however, seem to be a little bit dull and inept, and the question that he asks them is a little bit accusatory. Why are you standing around looking at each other in this dire situation? And uh, now, uh, Jacob sees the need for grain, but they're slow on the uptake, and he has to tell them what to do. And perhaps the reason is, the family still seems to be fractured and dysfunctional. And maybe they've grown apart since their treachery toward Joseph. We saw back in chapter 38 that Judah departed from his family and went uh, to live in the civilization of Canaan for a lengthy period of time. Maybe it's the famine that caused him to come back to the family. And perhaps during this period of time, the other brothers were wandering about as well. So did their treatment of Joseph further fracture their relationships as well as the tension that was already there uh, between the sons with different mothers? And now uh, things are still not the way they ought to be. Now, on this occasion, they are forced to work together. They all have to go down to Egypt and collect grain. And apparently, uh, Jacob's affection for Joseph has now been transferred to uh, Benjamin, Rachel's second son. 
And he's afraid that some kind of calamity will befall him if he travels with the other brothers like what happened to Joseph. And this same fear causes him later to adamantly refuse to allow Benjamin to go back to Egypt at the end of the chapter. Now, Jacob, then it would seem, has not forsaken his favoritism, which contributed to the original fracture of the family. And this all has to change if they're going to demonstrate the character necessary to lead the tribes of Israel and be used of God to influence their world. So we come to their arrival in Egypt in verse 6, and have a long section here where there's a confrontation with Joseph, which leads these men to a recognition and confession of their sin. Now, we have to remember that 20 years of separation from Joseph has not removed the guilt that they sense over what they did to him. And the Lord's going to use this whole situation to bring this to surface. Now, let's take a look at verse 6. We're reminded, Joseph was governor over the land, and it was he who sowed to all the people of the land. So whenever somebody needed grain, they had to go through Joseph's department, and Joseph's brothers came and bowed down before him with their faces to the earth. Now, does that remind you of anything? We go back and we think of the dreams that Joseph had. Those dreams said that his brothers would bow down to him. And here we see a partial fulfillment of that dream. Not everybody is yet there, but what this does is causes Joseph to remember those dreams and that those dreams are now coming to fruition. Verse 7 also gives us some important information. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. So he immediately knows who they are. And he acted as a stranger to them, and he spoke roughly to them. Then he said to them, where do you come from? Okay, so the first thing we see is they're bowing down to him, and this causes him to remember the dreams as the story continues here. He knows who they are. He asks them a question uh, to make sure that it really is his brothers. They're from Canaan. And Joseph's scheme now is to act like a stranger to them, not a long-lost brother, and treat them in a curt manner. And in this way, he's going to find more information about the family over this long period of time. And uh, everything that occurs from this point forward, as he remembers his dream, is associated with that. Okay, they say they're from the land of Canaan to buy food. Joseph recognizes brothers, but they do not recognize, <coughs> excuse me, Joseph. <coughs> excuse me. And we have to remember that 20 years have passed. Joseph isn't going to look like a 17-year-old anymore. He is going to be clean-shaven. He is going to appear as an Egyptian in the royal robes of his position. And he's speaking to them through an interpreter. So they really can't fully hear his voice even. 
Um, so he's maintaining uh, what he's doing here incognito for his purposes to be fulfilled. And he maintains power over them uh, to manipulate things in the direction he wants to go, not only as Pharaoh's prime minister and somebody that they ought to show respect to, but through the truth that he recognizes them, but they are ignorant of who he is. Now, he goes through a series of accusations and he elicits further information about the family. Okay, verse 9, Then Joseph remembered the dreams which he had dreamed about them, and he said to them, You're spies. You've come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, No, my lord, but your servants have come to buy food. We are all of one man's sons, We are honest men. Your servants are not spies. All right. Now, Joseph, knowing his brothers, knows they are not really spies. But this would not be an unusual accusation uh, by a person who's a high official in government in this situation. There certainly might be other nations who are interested in coming down and Uh, using for their own advantage everything that's going on. So in this way, his brothers would be unaware of what Joseph is really doing through this tactic. And the response is true, but nevertheless somewhat ironic. They are the sons of one man. Uh, They immediately say, no, this isn't true. We're, We're men of honesty. We're men of integrity. But when we think about this whole story here, wouldn't we question this honesty that they claim? In Joseph's experience, well, uh, they hadn't been very loyal to him. They hadn't been very honest with him. Uh, And we know that when they took his cloak that they tore up and made appear like it was uh, ripped apart by a wild animal and confronted their father and said, do you recognize this coat? We know they weren't being honest with him either. They were lying about the situation. So this claim of, of honesty is somewhat ironic here. And as Joseph uh, presses them, more information comes out. He says in verse 12, No, but you have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said, your servants are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And in fact, the youngest is with our father today, and one is no more. So Joseph finds out, uh, number one, that his father's still alive. Number two, that his little brother is still alive. And apparently they haven't done the same thing to his little brother that they did to him because he's under his father's care. Now, of course, these guys are in their 40s now. Uh, Even Benjamin is married and has children who find out at the end of the book of Genesis. So they're not uh, uh, teenagers and young uh, men in their 20s as they once were. Two decades have passed in this time. So he's, he's gathering information about how the family is doing, and is going to use this for God's purposes of reconciliation. When, he, when they say one is no more, well, in their mind, that's true. They 
felt that Joseph probably was dead by now. And uh, that was true, but of course we find here that he's standing right there in front of them. They just don't know it. All right, now Joseph uh, presses them. He gets this information, and then he comes right out and tests his brothers. He's going to prove whether or not they're honest. And uh, he has really two plans develop here. In verse 14, Joseph said to them, It is as I spoke to you, saying, You are spies. And in this manner you shall be tested. I'm going to prove you, and you're going to have to prove to me that you're not spies. So he's using this tactic to elicit their character, to find out if they have changed at all or if they're willing to change. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother, and you shall be kept in prison that your words may be tested to see whether there is any truth in you, or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. So he put them all together in prison three days. All right, so this is his condition. They're not going to be able to go back home with the goods that will help their family survive until they bring this supposed younger brother, Benjamin, to him. One of them will return to Canaan. They'll fetch Benjamin, and the others are going to remain in prison until he arrives. So again, his purpose is to test their integrity. Are they really and truly speaking uh, what is right and true? And this will develop uh, in the mind of Joseph what their character is really like, if it's any different than it was 20 years ago. Uh, Interestingly, he swears by Pharaoh, not by God, uh, but this was kind of the manner of things in those days. And what he does by doing that is stresses to them the seriousness of this whole issue. If they do not do this, they're going to be viewed as spies. They're going to remain in prison or even worse, be executed. So he's kind of putting uh, as much fear into them as he can in the situation. Then they find themselves in prison for just three days, a very, very brief experience that Joseph has actually gone through and endured for many years. Now, this treatment may seem somewhat harsh to us. Some might question if Joseph isn't really being vengeful. But this isn't how Joseph's character has been portrayed through his story. If we go back in time, there's no indication that he bore a grudge against Potiphar, uh, Potiphar or his wife or the butler who forgot him in prison. And we'll see that uh, as this story develops, he does show compassion toward his brothers, but he has to be this way. He has to appear stern to discover where they're at, spiritually speaking. And really, this is one of the amazing qualities of Joseph because nothing has ever spoken negatively about his attitude through all these harsh circumstances in his own life. Now, uh, as they're in the prison stewing, Joseph return, has them return to him and he has an alternative plan that really kind of shows his compassion here. So in verse 18, 
Then Joseph said to them the third day, do this and live. And he gives the reason for his change of tactic. He says, for I fear God. Now this puts them kind of in the same framework, spiritually speaking, because this is the word God that you would find any place else in the Hebrew Bible uh, that would convey the Hebrew God, not an Egyptian God. So he's saying, I fear God, and because I fear God, this is why I'm changing my mind and changing what I'm going to do. And he says, if you are really honest men, let one of your brothers be confined to your prison house, but you go and carry grain for the famine of your houses and bring your youngest brother to me so your words will be verified and you shall not die. Okay, so the three, are, the brothers are mulling over the situation for three days in prison. They're probably figuring out who is the one person who's going to go back home. But Joseph releases them. He goes through this other plan. And he's really kind of showing his care here because their families would need food. Uh, Their families are suffering. And one person going back could not nearly take as many supplies as nine people going back. So Joseph discloses... Uh, his plan to them, and only one brother will remain with them there in prison. The rest will go through. And then he has this kind of threat of death that we wonder, well, um, how's he going to carry out that kind of a thing? Well, when you think about it, if they don't return, how are they going to survive the famine? Joseph knows it's going to last for seven years. They certainly can't take that much food back with them. So if they don't come back, it's likely they would die. If they do return without their youngest brother, well, how are they going to escape punishment in that situation? So they agree to Joseph's plan uh, there at the end of verse 20. You, uh, or excuse, yes, and they did so. So as all this transpires, they agree to do this, but then they start thinking about why in the world Did all this have to happen? And this is where their guilty conscience begins to work upon them. Then in verse 21, they said to one another, we are truly guilty concerning our brother, for we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us, and we would not hear. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. Now, these Fellas don't know that that's Joseph. Why after 20 years, when this mishap comes upon them, would their mind immediately go to that situation and they would come out with their guilt in this, uh, to what they had done with their brother Joseph? This is something that surely must have never gone away. As much as they tried to forget it, shove it under the carpet, whatever, the first time a Serious difficulty comes. This is where their minds go. So let's take a look here at some things that result from the guilt of sin. In verse 21, the guilt of sin 
will gnaw at your soul. You can't get away from it. Uh, They haven't forgotten the situation. Uh, They recognize their guilt of being cruel and hard-hearted, ignoring Joseph's pleas to get him out of the well and to save him from this situation. And when a person knows they've done something wrong, they will usually have a sense of guilt about it. Maybe not 100% of the time because they don't really realize all the wrong that they do. However, we can always choose to try to ignore that, sweep it under the rug, or in some way dismiss it. But the Lord has his ways to bring that guilt to the surface so it can be dealt with. Now, in verse 21, they say, Therefore, this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, saying, Did I not speak to you, saying, Do not sin against the boy? And you would not listen. Therefore, behold, his blood is now required of us. So the guilt of sin demands restitution. And they're seeing that here. They realize that they're beginning to bear the punishment for their guilt, for their sin, because they ignored Joseph's uh, distressful cries. They're, in turn, being placed in a very distressful situation. And unconfessed sin bears consequences, and they're starting to feel those consequences. Uh, Reuben reminded them or, or tried to persuade them not to harm the boy. We know how that story all turned out, but again, they wouldn't listen to his plan, and now they're paying the price for Joseph's blood. Even though they did not really kill him, it was therefore fault he was taken into Egypt and making Jacob think that he was dead. And then we put this all together here. Sin always brings pain. Sin brings pain to its victims. Joseph suffered. He suffered slavery, false accusation, imprisonment as a result of their sin. God will turn that all around. He uses it for good. Nevertheless, he felt the pain of that affliction. Jacob suffered the loss of his son, thinking he was dead. And even after 20 years, we'll find here that he still was feeling that pain. And sin also brings pain to those who commit it. Joseph's brothers have been burdened by this guilt under the surface for all of these years. It's the first thing they think about in this predicament, indicating that it had not been forgotten. And they're now learning the price of trying to hide it instead of confess it. Joseph's plan is going to help them see what they've done and put them on the road to reconciliation. And we all understand the pain of being a victim of someone's sin. We all know the pain we have caused from time to time when we've sinned against others. The only relief that can come from that is confession And confession leads the way to reconciliation. Now, Joseph's response shows us again his compassion and his ultimate desire for the family to get back where they ought to be. 
we find in verse 23, they did not know that Joseph understood them for he spoke to them through an interpreter. He could still understand their language. And he turned himself away from them and he wept. Now why did Joseph weep? He already knows what his brothers uh, did to him. Uh, It's not because he's reminded of their past action. He's forgotten all about that stuff and left it in the past. We found that out by the naming of his son Manasseh. He's weeping because his brothers have finally recognized their sin uh, against him and they're on the right road through that recognition and that's going to lead to change. And when he regains his composure, he returns to them, he talks to them a little bit more, then he takes Simeon and he binds them before their eyes. Simeon is the one he chooses to stay and remain in prison until they return. We may wonder why he does that. Well, Reuben was the oldest, but in their little talk here, we find, or or Joseph finds that Reuben actually tried to help him or deliver him. So perhaps he chose Simeon for that reason, and especially because Simeon was one of the least favored sons for what he had done back at Shechem. So now Simeon is going to stay in captivity until they come back. Now, the story continues, beginning verse 25, as they start to head back home. And we find here despair and dismay in Joseph's family uh, through what has happened here. But again, God is moving uh, these people in the right direction. Then Joseph gave a command to fill their sacks with grain, to restore every man's money to his sack and to give them provisions for their journey. Thus he did for them. So Joseph abundantly supplies his brothers, even though they certainly didn't deserve it for the way he had been treated. And um, you remember when he was sold into Egypt, he went to Egypt with nothing, not even his uh, tunic. They also pocketed some money, didn't they? They all got two shekels of silver in return for that fray, uh, uh, trade. And when Joseph sends his brothers away now, he's not uh, holding back anything. He's not uh, grudgeful, but he loads up their donkeys and he sticks the money back in their packs, uh, not to their knowledge. And this later will add to their consternation. We come to verse 26. They loaded their donkeys with the grain. They departed from there. But as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey feed uh, feed at the encampment, he saw his money. There it was in the mouth of his sack. So whatever they brought, probably some silver, uh, as he opened it up to, to feed his donkey, the money's in there. So now what's going through their mind? Well, verse 28 says, he said to his brothers, my money's been restored, There's, there it is in my sack. Then their hearts failed them, and they were afraid, saying to one another, what is this that God has done to us? So Lord is working in their hearts and minds. You know how we know? This is the first time they mention the name of God in this whole story going way back into Genesis uh, chapter 30s. 
So finally, they are realizing that God is using these circumstances to deal with them. And there's no other, uh, no other way they can explain what's going on here except for what in the world is God doing to us? So they're open to what God is doing. They're wondering about it. They really kind of want to find out what's going on. And this uh, restoration of money in the sack is, is something that causes them actually to tremble with fear at this recognition. Well, they finally get home and uh, reiterate the story to their father in verse 29. Then they went to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man who is the Lord of the land spoke roughly to us and took us for spies of the country. Now, that's true. But we said to him, We are honest men. We're not spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father, One is no more, and the youngest is with our father this day in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the lord of the country, said to us, By this I will know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers here with me. Take food for the famine of your households and be gone. And bring your youngest brother to me, so I shall know that you are not spies, but you are honest men. I will grant your brother to you, and you may trade in the land. Now, to their credit, they recite this whole situation in such a way as to spare their father as little consternation as possible. They don't say that Simeon is in prison. They say he was left there, and that kind of implies that, well, he was kind of the guest of the Pharaoh till they return. They leave off the, the threat of death, uh, only saying that he spoke roughly to them. And uh, they and, and uh, Joseph never said anything about trading in the land once you bring Benjamin back. Uh, so they're really kind of caring for their father by withholding those things that might cause him to fear. But when they get back and they begin to unload, everything uh, changes and this fear and this despair begin to take over. Verse 35, then it happened as they emptied their sacks that surprisingly each man's bundle of money was in his sack. Now previously only one had discovered that. Uh, Apparently the money of the others was someplace else or they were just using one pack animal for supplies on the way home. And now they all find out that all the bundles of money were still there. And what's their response? Once again, they are extremely agitated. They are afraid. Uh, So added to their accusation that they're spies, now one could say they're thieves. They're dishonest thieves. And so this adds to their fears, which a lot of times when you don't know what's going on. Uh, fear takes over, and uh, they're confronted with the seriousness of this situation. If they try to go back now, will they be executed because they'll be accused of stealing? So all these kind of things are going on in their minds, and, and things get worse as Jacob responds to this whole event. Look at what he says in verse 36. Jacob, their father, said to them. Now now notice, 
the use of the name Jacob, not Israel. It seems that most of the time when Jacob's having an improper response, the name Jacob is used. When there's a proper response, the name Israel is used. So maybe that comes to play here. So Jacob says to them, you have bereaved me. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And you want to take Benjamin down there to Egypt? So he's thinking along the negative and pessimistic lines. And look at what he says. All these things are against me. And it's your fault. So here we again have this this fracturing of the family, uh, this this fighting, Jacob's shown favoritism again. We don't know where these brothers really stand with each other. And now he's blaming them for these bad circumstances. He thinks his family's being destroyed from within. Now Reuben pipes up, and this is really dumb. Reuben says, Kill my two sons. That's really going to solve the problem, isn't it? Kill my two sons if I don't bring them back to you. So he's trying to convey his trustworthiness. But, you know, how would that help Jacob's feelings if uh, he were to kill two of his grandchildren? So it's not really a very wise thing that he says here. But he is trying to convey by this um, hyperbole that he's trustworthy, you can trust me, put him in my hands, I'll bring him back to you. Jacob says, no way. My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is left alone. If any calamity should befall him along the way in which you go, then you will bring my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. In other words, it'll kill me. So, Jacob, once again, is responding in fear, not in faith. Jacob sees all this as against him. We know the whole story. We know it's not against him. We know it's for him. We know it's going to turn out right, and the family's going to be reconciled. But at this point, Jacob does not know that. Jacob's response is totally self-centered, and he doesn't inquire of the Lord. He doesn't ask the Lord what's going on. He's not looking up in faith. He's looking down in despair, even though God is slowly bringing about his plan to reconcile the family. So at this point, uh, poor Simeon's going to pine in prison for a while. We don't know exactly how long. Uh, And uh, Jacob is in this depressed frame of mind. I'm sure things aren't going real well. They're not going to have any family reunions real soon. And and Joseph is now God's instrument, not only to save the whole world, but to save this family whom God has chosen to become the nation of Israel. If something doesn't happen, well, that's not going to work out. God's going to have to do something else. So we're kind of at a bad point right here as far as Jacob's concerned. And we'll see the rest of the story next time. But let's look at some of the applications we can draw from uh, this story. First of all, we can again call attention to the attitude of Joseph. 
And once again, Joseph displays his wisdom and discretion recognized by the Pharaoh. He holds back from revealing himself to his brothers so he can determine their character. And his end game is reconciliation. But again, in order for that to happen, his brothers have to confess their sin and repent of it and put themselves on the road to reconciliation. Uh, We're also reminded of Joseph's refusal in his life to allow the circumstances to control uh, his life, unlike his father Jacob. So in spite of being hated by his brothers, sold into slavery, accused of heinous sin, being thrown into prison for we don't know how many years, being forgotten about there, there's no indication of bitterness or resentment or revenge on his part. He's always being lifted up and put into a good position because he has a good disposition. So in his faith, in and fear of God, he was able to rise above those circumstances and God could use him. Thirdly, and obviously we see, be sure your sins will find you out. You reap what you sow. Joseph brothers began to recognize this, fortunately, before it was too late for the family. And as the story continues, they and Joseph will be reconciled, but confession of sin was necessary for that to come about. As the New Testament says, if we confess our sins, God's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then finally, as we think about Jacob's response, there are two ways to respond to the hard things that come into our life. Jacob's response was totally different than Joseph's. Instead of looking to the Lord for help and answers, instead of using this as an opportunity to grow in his faith, he blamed his hardships on his sons, only making family matters worse. He forgot that God is able to bring good out of evil as we trust him to do so. So a lot to be learned by this Old Testament story in Genesis 42. Heavenly Father, we're thankful again today for your word and for the many ways it teaches us truth and keeps us on the pathway of uh, your will. We're thankful, Lord, that although we are guilty sinners, if we confess our sin and trust in Christ, we can be saved. We can be reconciled with God and with others. We're thankful, Lord, that you bring circumstances to bear and bring people into our lives that help us to stay on that pathway. And we pray, Lord, you'll continue to do so. Help us to respond to the difficulties of life like Joseph did, rather than Jacob, trusting you and looking to you for strength to endure. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.